Hello and welcome. We're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. They lost their vision of God as Lord, Lord of not just Israel, but Lord of the whole earth. So consider, if you will, the person of Jesus Christ. Just a notable character, or does he warrant the title most often used to describe him, that being Lord? In the Bible, Jesus was referred to as Lord, and nothing could be more true, because that's exactly what he was and is. Jesus spoke with such authority, and his actions confirmed his Lordship. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in his series on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Every Advent season, we prepare our hearts by looking again at the Scriptures, that reveal that the eternal Son of God took on humanity, became flesh. He added to his deity human flesh and human nature. Without the creeds saying, without him diminishing at all his deity, the eternal Son of God who took on the name Jesus, who took on the title Christ, so he is Jesus the Christ, became man. Not in a way that you might write a script of the hero coming riding a horse over the horizon to the rescue, but as a helpless baby. The book of Revelation would describe this moment of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, coming into the world with a very, very particular Greek word. That Greek word is arnion. That the word arnion is the Greek word for new born lamb and that's how jesus is described as the lamb of god in the book of revelation and in the book of revelation which the first five words tell us what the entire book is about and if you can grasp the first five words of the opening verse of the book of revelation you will gain a magnificent preparation to understand what the whole book is about the first five words say this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, I'm now going to pray that God would give you something akin to what I'm going to call a sonic boom of a revelation that you might come to know and understand who Jesus really is, that your heart will be so filled with wonder and the gravitas of this, what we call the Christmas babe, the Christmas child, that your heart will overflow with the echoes of this sonic boom in your soul. So let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, I pray that you would speak through me to all those who are gathered, all those who are listening, perhaps by internet, by radio, by podcast, however it is, that Lord, you would speak to their soul in a supernatural way, take the words of your word, put them through my mouth and into the hearts, not just the ears of all those who would hear right now. And Father, as I have just foretold, if I, I've just given my, my desire, my longing in sharing this, that Father, it would be an explosion of truth that would bring incredible peace, incredible joy, and a likeness to people's souls as they sense you, the great burden bearer, as Lord of Lords. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. In order to grasp 
the, the background of what we're going to be talking about, which is the lordship of Jesus Christ and the, his, the extent of his lordship. The extent of his lordship in the Old Testament, the extent of the lordship of God, and, and God is referred to in the Old Testament as Yahweh. It's, it's made up of uh, four Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And we put vowels in that to make it have that sound, Yahweh, Yahweh. And so throughout most of the backdrop to the Old Testament, the, the nations that surrounded Israel conceived of the world in which there were gods over this and that. And these particular gods also had territorial boundaries. They were limited to, the, to a nation, a national boundary. And so in one sense, the more territory a nation conquered, the, the more gods it had in its corner, so to speak. Some of these gods, of the, the territorial gods, are named in the Old Testament. We have Baal, uh, Dagon or Dagon, Molech, Rimon, Nebo, Bel, Marduk, Azazel, for example. But the God of the Bible, Yahweh, refused and continually told his people, do not treat me like the nations treat their so-called gods. He refused to be treated as a mere territorial God. And this might sound confusing. You can understand how some Israelites did actually confuse this because God had promised them a promised land, a territory that he would give them. And he declared he would be the God of Israel. So it sounds territorial, but even though he revealed to them, it was never about territory. It was about global dominion, and we'll have a look at that in a moment. So his revelation to his covenant people, the people that he formed a covenant with at Mount Sinai when Moses brought down the law, and then later on uh, Joshua reinstated, as we'll see, that covenant that the people of Israel had with Yahweh, with God. And in your English Bibles, that word Yahweh will usually be rendered in all capitals L-O-R-D, because the translator is telling you, we don't know how to convey this to you, except with all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord. So with this in mind, eventually Israel just fell into thinking of the God of Israel as a territorial God. This ultimately led to them thinking that, that when Solomon dedicated the temple and invited God to come and dwell in the temple, and you, would, you could be forgiven for thinking that is exactly what happened because it says that as the priests ministered in the dedication of the temple, fire fell from heaven and God's presence inhabited the holy of holy place in that particular part of the temple. And so it led to this very pagan concept of God developing even among the Hebrews among the Israelites, where they thought of God as inhabiting the temple. If you ask a Hebrew in the Old Testament, where is God? He'd point to the temple. He'd say, he lives in there. He's the God who lives in there, in that temple, in that building. That's where he is. And this led to the wrong theology. The wrong theology is how we understand God. The wrong theology that God was in there, but not out there. I could leave the temple precinct and he would not see me, hear me, or know what I was doing. This led to them performing religious rituals in the temple and in the temple precinct and then going out of the temple precinct 
and living like the surrounding nations. And we know that because we see that in the record of Scripture as we read about the demise of Israel, where they, were, they lost their vision of God as Lord, Lord of not just Israel, but Lord of the whole earth, until, as a fellow I'm going to refer to a couple of times in, in this Dr. Muntha Ishak, he's a Palestinian theologian, he's a Lutheran theologian. He calls it until the Jesus event. Until the Jesus event, God was thought of by Hebrews, by Israelites, as the God of Israel, the God of that territory. And when they were able to return to their land, that became a very, very narrow place. So after the Jesus event, Dr. Muntha Ishak, he says no one from that point on could be confused with the idea that God was just a God of a specific territory. Now we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 39 because what I've said is that God told the people of Israel straight up he was God. Well, let's, let's have a look. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 39 says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord, that is Yahweh, is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. The God of the Bible, the God who created heaven and earth, the God who rescued Israel out of Egypt, the God who had previously chosen Abraham, as we've seen, this God is unique. There is no one like him. He is not a part of a pantheon of gods, that is multiple gods. Pick a god, pick any god, maybe pick this one. No, he is absolutely unique. He has unique attributes. There is no one in the universe that shares with God these unique attributes. And there is no one who shares the essential attribute of God, and that is that he is eternal. The uncreated God, as uh, the Platonists the, the people who followed the teachings of Plato, Plato realized there has to be a first cause to everything. There has to be an uncaused first cause, the, the prime mover, the first one to create being God. There has to be. And this was coming from a, the, the Greek philosophers who began to reason there can't be multiple equal gods. It, it's just nonsense. So we've seen already in this brief survey of the Lordship of Jesus Christ that it was Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, who fulfilled all of the promises that Yahweh gave to Israel. They longed for their promises to be fulfilled when after the exile, the prophets, for example, in Ezekiel 36, prophesied that they would be restored to their land and God would pour out his spirit upon them their longing to be restored to the land and to have God's Spirit poured upon them was actually fulfilled by Christ. He was the fulfillment of all of the promises given to Israel. We read in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 13 of the beginning, one of the earliest statements of how this promise is made. Remember, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, cries Moses, and said to them, 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all of this land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And of course, as we read on, we read that that was a conditional promise, conditional on their obedience and their faithfulness to the covenant. So the promise given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was then passed down to their descendants, the 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes. It was administered by Moses at Mount Sinai. We read about this in Exodus chapter 19 and restated in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. This covenant was an agreement that had agreed terms. Israel agreed to the terms. We read about this in the Old Testament. Yahweh's covenant was embedded with this promise, the promise to bring them out of bondage in Egypt where they were slaves, and into a land flowing with milk and honey, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 3. To live as freed people was part of the covenant and the promises that God gave to Israel. We read in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 26 to 28, this somber warning though, I mentioned before, this was to be yours forever with a condition. And here's the condition. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that was before you. So here's the point. It's not the land that makes people holy. It's the holiness of people that makes the land holy. You see, it's the other way around. When God says that the people defiled the land, it was because they were doing abominable things. That is, things that were so evil and wicked, such as sacrificing their children to false gods by slaughtering them by offering them into fire alive, by having sex with temple prostitutes of the pagan gods, treating sex as if it wasn't something sacred, as if it wasn't something holy. And God was deeply grieved by this. And so he drove them out, gave Israel that formerly polluted land and told them to live holy lives by keeping the covenant. And the promise was they would possess the land And the land would be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a poetic picture of its absolute prosperity. And we see there in Leviticus 18 verses 26 to 28 that there was a conditional warning. You break this covenant, the Lord will spew you out. He will vomit you out. The land will vomit you out. The text renders it that way. So when Israel did break their covenant with Yahweh, And they did fail to keep the terms of the covenant. And they mocked God. The land indeed vomited them out. But it was Joshua in the closing chapters of Joshua where he calls the people before they entered into the land to form this covenant afresh with God. And they did. We read this in Joshua chapter 24, verses 16 down to verse 21, where the people said, yes. We will serve God. We will be faithful to him. Us, our children and our grandchildren and all our descendants will be covenant keepers of the covenant with Yahweh. But they didn't. In fact, 
they broke it almost immediately. And time and time again, God sent prophets to them to warn them that they risk incurring the penalty of breaking their covenant with God. We read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse 19. We read Jeremiah the prophet. In fact, nearly all of Jeremiah the prophet is, a, is him warning the people. This warning that's contained in Leviticus, this will happen because you are breaking the covenant. And the people mocked Jeremiah and they mocked God and they mocked the covenant. So Israel had become deceived in their thinking that God was merely like these territorial gods. He wasn't the God who could see outside of the temple or hear outside of the temple or act outside of the temple. He was just a local, run-of-the-mill, territorial God. And boy, were they in for a surprise. Firstly, the ten northern tribes of Israel paid the highest penalty they were taken by Assyria around about the, the 8th century BC and, and then it was about 100 years later in the 6th, and 6th century BC that we have the, the, southern tribe of, the southern tribes of Judah who also broke covenant with God. The 10 northern tribes have become known as the lost tribes of Israel and the tribes of, of the south, mainly Judah and Benjamin, were taken as exiles into Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah talks about northern tribe, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom as being like two sisters. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where Jeremiah is warning the people of Judah, don't be like your northern sister. It says this, And I thought, this is God speaking, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, that is the northern kingdom, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she also went and played the whore. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, declares the Lord. You can hear the heartache of the prophet Jeremiah who, would, who was pleading with the people, return to the Lord. Don't treat him like a territorial God. Don't treat him like he's just like the pagan gods of the nations. Jeremiah's prophetic reminders to the people of the covenant largely fell on deaf ears. Judah like its northern sister, also abandoned Yahweh and they broke covenant with God. And as Jeremiah had warned in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 22, they also were invaded, this time by Babylon, and they also were to be exiled. And they too were never again to lay possession to the boundaries of their land that they had once been promised, that had been promised to them in the covenant of the Lord that Moses had given the people. Among these exiles, we, we read in the Bible of Daniel and Mordecai and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. But when Cyrus, also known as Darius, decreed, and we read this in Nehemiah chapter 1, when he had decreed that all the exiled Jews, uh, which was now their nickname given to them by the Babylonians, 
now they could return to their ancestral home. Some did. Not all, but some did. And by the time of Christ, the territory of Israel was no longer under Babylonian occupation. It was under Roman occupation. And it had been that way since the time of General Pompey, uh, several decades before Christ. But the Jews longed. They longed for the promise of God that they would once again be restored to their land and have their temple rebuilt. And, and they longed for this. The temple eventually would be rebuilt and largely under the sponsorship of Herod the Great. And their temple precinct was granted to them by the Romans to be under their rule. So the Romans agreed they would stay out and the Jews could have this. This would be their patch. So the entire promise of God about land was now defined by a patch of territory on the top of Mount Zion, above the city of Jerusalem. When Christ came, everything changed. Because by the time of Christ, the temple and its three outer courtyards had become emblematic of what God's promised land was meant to be. It was meant to be a holy place where God and man could meet. It was meant to be a sacred space where sacrifices could be offered to atone for sins. And it was meant to be a place of judgment, a place where God's will could be enforced through the teaching of the law. It was uh, Muntha Ishak that, that described that when Christ entered into Israel's history, when Christ entered into human history, he calls this the Jesus event. If we'd been there at the time when Jesus arrived, grew up as a, a, a baby and, and then a young man and then a, a teenager and then, then as a young man, I'm not sure that we would have picked him out of a crowd. In fact, I was, I was intrigued recently when some researchers took the Shroud of Turin, which has uh, an interesting history of credibility, and they took the Shroud of Turin and they, they used AI to map out what the face etched into the Shroud of Turin would reveal about the identity of Jesus. And, and essentially what we have is someone who, who would have looked like an average first century Jewish man, which fulfills exactly what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. My servant would grow up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. So when Jesus, the promised Messiah, did appear, he actually said some quite shocking things to Jewish ears, especially the Jewish religious leaders. He declared that it was he who was the place where God and man could meet. We read in John chapter 14 and, and verse 6 that Jesus declared to those who were around him, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. This was seen by Jews. Well, no, hang on. This is what the temple does. This is The temple is the precinct where God and man meet. And now Jesus is saying, no, I am. He also declared that he was greater than the temple. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, he says, 
I tell you, and this was in a heated exchange with the scribes and Pharisees, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, as he was referring to himself. He declared to the Jewish audience that he would be the the atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind. We read in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, as he instituted the what we refer to as the Lord's Supper, which we now refer to as Holy Communion, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. To Jewish ears, what are you talking about? This is what we sacrifice animals for and we have to do it continually over and over and over and here's jesus saying nope i'm the ultimate sacrifice for sins and then in matthew sorry in mark chapter 10 and verse 45 jesus describes himself as the ransom that pays the price for the redemption of all mankind he says for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that wasn't enough. He went on and he declared that ultimately he would be the judge. All judgment of all mankind would be given to him by God the Father. In John chapter 5 and verse 22, Jesus declared in the temple precinct, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son as he was referring to himself as the Son of God. Dr. Munta Ishak describes the effect of what Jesus was saying. These statements coming out of the mouth of Christ, he says it was like an earthquake. It was like a series of aftershocks that happened after Christ because of what he said and what he did. Jesus was saying that it was not the temple that made anyone holy. It was him. It was not the sacrificing of animals that could atone for anyone's sin. It was him. He declared and John the Baptist reinforced that he was the Lamb of God. The one who would take away the sins of the world. It was not the high priest who ruled on behalf of Yahweh. It was exclusively, Jesus said, him. Even at the trial of the so-called trial of Christ before Caiaphas, the high priest emeritus, Jesus made an outstanding declaration after the high priest had put him under oath to tell him the truth. And in the law, it says, if you put under oath, you are obliged, you must Tell the truth. You must do it. And so we read this exchange. Now the high priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Notice that, false testimony. That they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Ha! Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, 
I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus was quoting the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. We've already been looking at this. The Son of Man, Daniel says, was the one who came to the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven, and to him was given a kingdom that shall have no end, and he shall be the judge. And Jesus has just cited it to Caiaphas, that he was the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel. Oh my The aftershocks of what Jesus the Christ said and did were felt for decades and centuries and millennia. And after his initial mission was accomplished by his display of the Father, by his display of his death on the cross and by the display of his resurrection and then his ascension back to glory, And it was then committed to his disciples to complete what he commissioned them to do just prior to his ascension. This was like a sonic boom, which is what I told you I'm praying will happen now as you hear what we're saying. A kaboom, the words of Christ in the Great Commission, where he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and command and teaching them everything I've commanded you. That was a sonic boom. Now, I know that this is going to be hard to understand if your heart is dull, but if your heart is open to what God would do, it won't surprise you then that one of the greatest opponents of Christianity, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, he wrote this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, not by creation, but by the fact that he was the first one to be resurrected. For by him, the Apostle Paul wrote, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. Oh, man. I pray that the aftershocks of this revelation will hit your soul like a nuclear explosion, a spiritual nuclear explosion, waves that will come upon you and that you'll realize who Jesus really is and what we call history (laughs) and what many people might in their own world call the problems of life. They'll begin to pale into insignificance as we realize what Paul is saying there, that Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, and you now must surrender him. It doesn't matter if you're a cleaner, a waitress, a doctor, a surgeon, a CEO of a company, a prime minister, a king, or a president of a nation or an empire, or even if you're just a teenager trying to figure out who you are, there is not one problem you have that you can't hand over to Christ.
There is not one reason or excuse you've got for not surrendering your life to Christ because He is Lord. And when you realize that every anxiety, every care, every trouble, every concern, every worry you have right now is nothing compared to this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, of all things visible and all things invisible. He is Lord, and that's not just a fridge magnet. It's the truth. The creeds, the ancient creeds of the church declare that Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, is now seated, and I quote, at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. There is not a problem, not a care, not an anxiety that he can't carry if you'd only give it to him. The songwriter wrote this beautiful verse of song. It's so true. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I hope, I pray that what we've seen in your word about the true identity of Jesus, based on what he said, what he did and what he accomplished, would become a truth that sinks deep into people's souls. That he is not a God, he is not an option, he is not a Lord, but he is the God. He is the only option, and he is the Lord. And that, Father, people right now would realize that because he is Lord, and he has come to rescue, and to save, and to redeem, and to heal the souls of every person, and all it takes is for them to yield to him. I pray, Father, for all those who are joining with us now, here and beyond, that you would speak to their soul. That, Father, something would well up in their soul that says, Jesus, come into my life. Help me to live for you, I pray. And I pray this as you've taught us to pray in Jesus' name. You pray that prayer, I guarantee you, from this point on, your life will be different. And we would love to help you. You can go to our website at findingtruthmatters.org or you can go to lagana.org, click on the contact link there and we would love to help you get a copy of God's word to you and to get you some material that will help you to start your new life 
God bless you. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, those who encountered Jesus of Nazareth met someone who knew everything about them. And those who meet him now experience the same thing. The King of the Universe knows you and loves you. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.